Hello and welcome to Crime Theories of the Record, the podcast series where I talk about my interpretation of crime theories. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone. In this episode, I will explore in more detail the theoretical legacy of the Chicago School as I examine the role of community context in crime. And for future episodes, I hope to delve into control theory and cultural deviance. But for now, I will start with discussing collective efficacy and introduce you to the work of Professor Robert Sampson. So, Professor Robert Sampson of Harvard University has perhaps done the most to revitalize Sean McKay's view that the degree of informal control exercised by residents will affect the extent of a community's crime problem. Off the record, I have not met him, at least not that I can remember, and I feel like that is something I would remember. But I have read some of his works and got hooked watching the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality models on YouTube where he covers poor neighborhoods. Moving on, while a graduate student at the University at Albany in the late 1970s, he enrolled in a seminar with Travis Hershey. But I won't go into much detail regarding Hershey's work today as he will have his own moment when I introduce you all to control theory. Anyways, Hershey was an advocate of control theory, arguing at this time that weakened bonds to parents, schools, and other aspects of conventional society permitted delinquency. This view was a rejection of that side of the Chicago school that linked crime to the transmission or learning of cultural values. Samson was persuaded by his professor's logic. However, he was not interested in why one individual rather than another engaged in crime, which was Hershey's concern. This is sometimes called a micro-level question because the focus is on individual difference in criminal conduct. Rather, Samson was more fascinated by the core macro-level question that had preoccupied scholars like Sean McKay, which is why one neighborhood or area called a macro-level unit rather than another had higher crime rates. But before I go on, I think it's important to define collective efficacy. Samson explains the concept of collective efficacy, which he coined to describe the social cohesion among a group, in this case a neighborhood, to respond to problems focusing on their willingness to intervene on behalf of the common good. These terms were meant to capture culture and social action. That is, they could count on neighbors to agree that certain situations were quote-unquote not okay or quote-unquote the norm, and deserving of a reaction. In turn, efficacy was meant to suggest that the residents could count on their neighbors to exert human agency and actually do something to solve the problem. Mostly as a force or voice to request law enforcement to cater to the community's needs. Put another way, neighbors with collective efficacy define problems similarly and are capable of jointly taking action to solve the problem. Taking you back to Hershey's seminar, Samson was introduced to a book by Ruth Kornhauser, 1978, I really hope I didn't butcher that last name, called uh, In Social Sources of Delinquency. Kornhauser shared Hershey's critique of cultural theories of crime, which totally makes sense why he assigned the book for class. But unlike Hershey, she mainly focused on the macro-level control side of social disorganization theory as an alternative explanation. Kornhauser's distinct focus led Samson to the works of Sean McKay and of other scholars within the Chicago School. 
Sumsen thus made the career choice to focus on macro-level control theory. Off the record, Professor Sampson's research and teaching cover a variety of areas including crime, disorder, the life course, neighborhood effects, civic engagement, inequality, ecometrics, and the social structure of the city. But that's just a fun fact in case you're interested in reading his work. If you haven't understood how much Sampson works has contributed to criminology, well, Sampson contributed a classic test of Sean McKay's work. Following this study, he continued to explore these issues. Much as Kornhauser in 1978 had recommended, he was part of a group of scholars that illuminated how informal social control at the community level explains variations in crime rates across neighborhoods. This approach came to be known as the systemic theory. The perspective argues that neighborhoods are characterized by a system of social networks and ties. Then social networks and strong social ties create the capacity of residents to come together to exert informal social control. Thus, if neighbors know, interact with, and care about one another, they are likely to watch one another's houses. Off the record, this concept of dense social networks and strong social ties remind me of my childhood as my mom would make a point for me to hang out with the neighborhood kids. Flash forward two decades later, and now I have a long-lasting best friend that watched me grow up, and my parents have someone to watch the house when we go on vacation. Which is why systemic theory makes sense to me. For if I didn't know my neighbor, or neighbor's kid, I could probably just mind my own business and be the nosy neighbor that I am and do nothing about anything, especially if someone was just lurking around my neighbor's house. Supplying a more sophisticated version of the systemic model, Robert Bursick and Harold Grasmick applied the work of sociology professor Albert Hunter to the study of crime. They articulated three levels of community control. One, the private, which involves intimate relationships among family members and friends. Two, the parochial, which involves those met through daily routines such as going to the same stores and participating in voluntary organizations like church or school. And lastly, the public, which involves relationships with external groups such as the police, social service agencies that provides resources integral to maintaining order. In organized communities, these three levels of control operate together to strengthen the controls over residents. But in neighborhoods marked by poverty, residential stability, and racial ethnic heterogeneity, the factors Shaw and McKay link to social disorganization networks are weak and the ability to exercise control across all three levels is strained which results in higher crime rates. Nevertheless, the reality of life in modern urban America seems to suggest that the presence of strong ties is not sufficient to prevent crime. And the absence of strong ties does not necessarily cause crime. However, Samson argued that social control no longer is rooted exclusively in social ties marked by intimacy and friendship. Off the record, I partially disagree with this idea as some cultures in different countries do want to be friends with their neighbors. Maybe not like best friends or buddy-buddy, but at least have some sense of community in place. But I do understand that Samson's research is based in America, which is more specifically a city in which maybe not everyone has the time or the energy to want to do that. Hence, when Samson notes that, quote-unquote, most people do not want to be close friends with their neighbors, they desire trust with them, not necessarily to eat dinner with them, it makes sense to me. Which is something I can get behind depending on the subject. Uh, such the key issue is not whether residents are best friends, but whether they see one another as the kind of neighbors, or good neighbors in this case, who will act with them when trouble happens. Spoiler alert! For fans of the show Bones, 
this concept reminds me of season 5 episode 4 a beautiful day in the neighborhood which has the team investigating human remains found at a neighborhood block party suburban politics and secret scandals give each neighbor a motive leaving dr brennan agent booth and dr sweets sifting through the drama to find their suspect or in this case multiple suspects long story short someone had killed the victim for quote-unquote ruining the neighborhood Though the neighborhood was aesthetically destroyed by the victim's windmill, it was also emotionally destroyed as the victim was engaging in multiple sexual affairs and giving laxatives to a dog, which leaves three people with motive. Arresting these three individuals, Dr. Sweet wonders if the neighbor's motives are strong enough for what appears to be a premeditated strike by three killers. Do you need to put on your theory's glasses on to see the theory in play? You could make the argument that the community came together to help the FBI solve the murder of their neighbor for the common good of the neighborhood, as I don't think anyone wants to be living next to a killer. With Stephen Roudenbush and Felton Earls, Samson addressed the concerns in an article published in 1997. Samson and his colleagues reconceptualized the social disorganization framework through their collective efficacy theory. In contrast to social disorganization theory and the systemic model, Samson and his colleagues did not argue that community-level control emerged naturally from close personal friendships among neighbors. In the traditional social disorganization systemic approach, informal social control was envisioned as embedded in networks and as something that exists day to day. By contrast, Samson and his colleagues 1997 did not see control as a state of being but rather as a capacity that could be activated when a problem arose and if a situation called for it. Samson and colleagues 1997 observed that neighborhoods vary in their ability to activate informal social control. For those who do not know what informal social control is, it is the reactions of people in a group, in this case the residents, that bring about the conformity to norms and laws, including peer and community pressure, bystander intervention in a crime, and collective responses such as citizen patrol groups. This means that the residents will react proactively and not passively when someone is misbehaving or is in trouble. The likelihood the residents will take such steps, however, is contingent on whether there is quote-unquote mutual trust and solidarity among neighbors. As a result, in neighborhoods where such cohesiveness prevails, residents can depend on one another to enforce rules of civility and good behavior. Such places have collective efficacy, defined as social cohesion among neighbors combined with their willingness to intervene on behalf of the common good. Samson and colleagues 1997 also argue that collective efficacy is not evenly distributed across neighborhoods. Rather, in communities marked by a concentration of new immigrants, residential inability, and the grinding economic deprivation of concentrated disadvantage. Samson and colleagues 1997 also predicted that these communities could not have the social budget to assert informal social controls and to keep the streets safe. Off the record, that makes sense when you think about police departments, especially when you consider their location and population, as they can sometimes barely keep up with staffing. In contrast, Collective efficacy is high in more affluent communities marked by long-term residential stability. Samson and his colleagues argue that people in these areas do not have to be best friends, only that they believe that their neighbors share their view of when control should be exercised. Though Samson and his colleagues did back up their claims with data, I won't go over all of their data, 
but will note that their analyses reveal that collective efficacy quote-unquote mediated much of the relationship between crime and the neighborhood characteristics of residential stability and concentrated disadvantages, a finding that is consistent with a major theme in neighborhood theories of social organization. The theory of collective efficacy appears to be a promising explanation of why urban neighborhoods differ, but just like any theory, it has some limitations and serious criticism. Some scholars have noted that an issue with collective efficacy is whether the concept illuminates the idea of a noble community process as it focuses on the community's willingness to activate or even act upon social control. Some argue that the term efficacy implies a state of being almost as a social action or social movement. Others will play devil's advocate and say that collective efficacy can be used in a negative context when looking at mobs and stalkers who employ collective efficacy measures. So I guess it just depends on how researchers define collective efficacy and how it's being measured when studying it. Off the record, if you haven't noticed by now, sociology and criminology tend to bleed into each other very frequently when discussing crime. So if you're interested in criminal justice or criminology, but feel like the job market could be too limited to the government, maybe take some time to consider sociology as a field in your future. I know, I just cover a lot, but coming up, I will venture into cultural attenuation. Off the record, this podcast series is brought to you by Anchor. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. If you're loving what you're learning, follow us on Instagram at ct.offtherecord. That is at ct.offtherecord, where you can visualize some of these theories and get some scoops on upcoming episodes. Come join us and please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to join me for next week's episode episode.